Blog Talk Radio. Life and death. 
uh, matters that yes. we're, you know, picking back up on. Um, I want to let uh, all of our listeners know we greatly appreciate you, um, the advocates that are out there, the loved ones, those that are secretly listening uh, behind bars. I, I can't say I don't blame you. Darn it, just don't get caught. Um, and, uh, you know, the only way they can get their word out, their truthful word, what's really going on inside quite often is through the use of cell phones, even though they're not supposed to have them. We think, though, in Oklahoma, uh, as in other states that it's happened, uh, like in Ohio already, um, that they're getting iPads. Uh, I'm not sure how restrictive that use will be, but it should really allow for some great FaceTime at least with uh, with loved ones because you have to remember, you, you know, people who are behind bars are there to are really, you know, guilty of something. They're there to pay their price to society and to rehabilitate and to get themselves back out into society uh, under the best possible methods uh, possible. And, uh, and you know, that's supposed to be through rehabilitation. And certainly um, not being able to uh, see your loved ones is um, usually not the best way that that can happen when visitations are, are taken away for, you know, the reasons that they are, whatever they are, I'm not going to get into that, you know, but um, – but also for the loved ones, those that are, their hearts are breaking, um, you know, they're doing everything they can from the outside to support and care for their, their loved ones. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, we have to look at some of the good things that might be going on, but we have some very, very grave things that we really need to talk about and never stop talking about it, never stop addressing it, never start uh, uh, stop uh, with the activated advocacy and as what Melissa is doing, uh, you, you know, impacting legislation in, in, other, in other states. So we want her everywhere, don't we? Her and some of her colleagues are doing tremendous, t- tremendous work. So um, neither Marty Oakley, M- Melissa, Tina, Stephen Burke, or myself can be held uh, liable for any error of content. If we need to be corrected or I need to be corrected in any way, you go ahead, you reach right on out to journeys to justice at gmail.com. If a correction needs to be made, we will be happy to make it. So I want to say hi to my mom before we start on uh, with the show tonight. This is going to fly right by. Um, this is emotions are tough kind of show. Uh, this is, we need to um, talk about the very tough subject. As uh, if you saw my promo, uh, the promo for this show, uh, there's, there's no way around it. There's no way around it. Is it really okay? Is it really okay for an innocent man or woman to be put to death? Is that okay? Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. Is it really no. okay for somebody who is in a very deranged manner, mentally ill, to be put to death, regardless of how heinous the crime is? 
deranged. I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe Melissa can help out with that. But somebody who's very mentally ill, and as in the promo, you know, some somebody that was as a child tortured, child trafficked, sex trafficked, tortured. What happened to that person? What happened? Isn't it time that we see things in a humane way? Isn't it time that I don't care if you you are more than welcome. You're more than welcome to believe an eye for an eye. I do not dispute your belief in an eye for an eye. Okay, I don't. I'm not going to dispute that. This is not dis- about disputing it. Okay, this is about disputing two different things here. An innocent man or woman being put to death or overly charged. Somebody that shouldn't be on death row. Okay, or overly charged, and somebody who does not their mind. Is, is not capable of functioning and that will likely forever need to be contained somewhere else than freely throughout society that committed a, a heinous crime, okay? You need to think about these things. So we hope you're staying right there with us and let's start talking about them. Melissa, can you let our uh, our listeners know uh, where you come from in this arena, uh, what you're doing, and so on. Okay, sure. Um, I am in the state of Connecticut. I actually work in state government for the state of Connecticut. Um, I'm also a master's student. I am in the criminal justice program at CCSU, so I'm about to finish that up. I'll be doing my last semester, but for my thesis, for my master's, I am going to be doing something on in executing the innocent because whether or not somebody supports the death penalty, they have their reasons why they, you know, there, there are people who support and they have their reasons why they do. But my position is that as long as there is room for, as long as there is error occurring, and we know that error is occurring, there have been 173 people exonerated from death row since 1973. The statistic of the, for every nine people that are on death row, one person is innocent. That's too much. I don't, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter. There's no room for error when you're talking about somebody's life. And right. um, the, the, even the notion of potentially executing someone who's innocent makes the death penalty a policy that should be taken off the table completely in every state and federally. Mm-hmm. There's other mm-hmm. reasons. I mean, there are other arguments, and like you said, people may support the death penalty because they think it's reserved for those who commit the most heinous crimes, or they think it's reserved you know, for the worst of the worst. They say that in quotes. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the statistics surrounding the death penalty, it is more flawed. There's really no valid argument in theory or in research that condones continuing this practice. And we're one of we, we don't want to be in the category with the other countries that are still practicing the death penalty. We should not be, and we are. Mm-hmm. 22% of the 104 people whose cases involved false confessions had exculpatory DNA evidence available at the time of the trial, but were still wrongfully convicted. 
as of mm-hmm. July 29th, 2020. Let's explain what that means in layman's terms. All right. Uh, so, sculpatory DNA evidence. It it was oh, available, it, yeah. but was it presented? Well, it, unfortunately, it seems to me that there are a number of cases where exculpatory evidence is withheld. They call it a Brady violation, Brady versus Maryland. Um, evidence that could have made a difference at trial. But it's down the road, when this notion is raised, often the the court will come back and say, no, that that, ev- that, that evidence wouldn't have made a difference had it been introduced in the verdict. But I, I, I have a problem with the court determining that because how in my mind, does the court determine what jurors would have or wouldn't have decided? And there have been cases where jurors have come forward and said, yes, had this exculpatory evidence been presented at trial, it would have swayed our opinion. And the court still refuses to recognize that in right. certain well, cases. So in, the, in the Daniel Holtzclaw case, there's DNA evidence, mm-hmm. and that's a, uh, not yeah. a, a national case. It is not a death penalty case. Uh, but he's in for, in for multiple lives, and uh, it's made national, um, you know, it's gotten national attention, such as Julius Jones. We're going to talk about Julius Jones a bit tonight, if you don't mind. Um, and I do also want to, you know, talk about what we've got going. I hope you don't mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know that, you you know, you might not be able to share certain things, uh, you know, but whatever you can, whatever you know about, um that you can, I, I won't, you know, I, I won't sure. cross any lines. Um, well, if but, you're having uh, a discussion on the death penalty, Julius Jones's case is one of the reasons why the death penalty should not exist. So it, I don't mind it, talking about it in that regard. Right, 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 right. And it, it's it's one that has made uh, national, national, uh, international, you know, it's got this attention has gone mm-hmm. very worldwide and, uh, we've got, you, you know, uh, we've got advocates like Kim Kardashian. Uh, who, who, who else? Um, you know, there. I know there's a basketball team that they wear his name. Uh, oh, yeah. Julius. Yeah. Name okay. On their on, on their sneakers, and um, who who else is out there uh, that is uh, advocating for Julius oh, Jones? That yeah, that people would do. Yeah, There's quite yeah. a few. Um, you have Baker Mayfield of, of the Cleveland Browns who advocates for Julius Jones, Russell Westbrook, Blake Griffin, as you said, Kim yeah. Kardashian. Um, uh, other celebrities have come forward like John Legend and Common. There, there's a whole bunch of people that advocate yeah. for Julius. And the thing is, so, there's people that advocate that, you, you know, the, the death penalty is, is – historically i think been been considered like a partisan issue it, you know if you're liberal you you don't support the death penalty if you're conservative you do support the death penalty that's not the case i know plenty of conservative people who do not support the death penalty and i know many conservative people who support julius jones not receiving the death penalty or not receiving the execution date because his case is so blatant that every yeah that other people can see that, that there's flaws in the system. It makes you see the flaws. It, it forces you to see the flaws. And, you know, and, and, and we know that, you know, some people are like, well, why aren't you talking about my case? Is wrongfully convicted, you know, facing life or death or what, whatnot. Remember this. Remember this. Uh, for those that are listening and thinking that and saying that, 
to themselves or other people, we got you. We get it. We completely get it, right, Tina? Right, Melissa? We completely get mm-hmm. it. But sometimes it takes one case to come to light that can change the world for the better. And whatever case or cases those are, those those things that shouldn't have to be precedent can become precedent. They shouldn't have to be. Uh, there's already uh, wrongs that have taken place that, you know, that should be made right when it comes to these trials, usually. Like, okay, mm-hmm. there's DNA now. There wasn't then. Let's retry it. You know, like those instances. But we we need to grasp on to every good thing that's happening. We need to grasp on to the fact that this is being recognized. Even if it isn't necessarily your loved one, you need to follow these situations because you want to know when something goes right and, 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 and it can save your loved one's life. You want to know because mm-hmm. because – because under most circumstances or many circumstances, they're not going to knock on your cell door, your loved one's cell door, and say, hey, did you hear about this case? Maybe you can get out. All right? Follow. Pay attention. Yeah. Get involved. They depend on us to do it. I mean, anybody who has loved ones, friends, anybody that are behind those bars, um, they need all the help that they can get on the outside. So people really need to stand up. And the, the death penalty, as I said, I, I don't feel it's a, it's a partisan issue anymore. It's a, it's a humanity issue. We have to look at these statistics and we have to say, look, that this is not a system. This is not a policy. This is not a best practice in sentencing at all. There is no argument for the death penalty that cannot be disputed with research and facts. You know, people an eye for an eye. Well, okay. Well, so we execute people who murder people, but do we rob people who rob other people? Do we rape people who rape other people? Uh, why does the eye for an eye only pertain in, in these cases? And it's not a deterrent. I mean, most of the executions in this country occur in the South. In fact, 80% of them do. The Southern states, the Southern region of this country has the highest murder rate in the country. How is it a deterrent? If the murder rates are the highest in the states where they where they execute the most people, it's not a deterrent. They're still committing homicides at higher rates right. than any other region in the country. Right. Right. It's that, and that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. That is just that is just what it is. Absolutely. I want people to be educated in the real statistics that surround the death penalty. I know that there's people that still support it and, and, you know, more so in certain states than others, but I wish, all I wish is that people would just really look at the statistics and look at what purpose, ask themselves, what purpose does the death penalty really serve? We can't say it's reserved for the most heinous, heinous crimes. We, we can't. I mean, I have examples. Um, take for instance, Gary Ridgway, who was a green river killer a while back, if anybody recalls that case, it was in the late 80s. It was in Washington State. Gary Ridgway murdered 48 teenage girls and sexually assaulted them. Gary Ridgway was not given the death penalty, even though the death penalty was an option in Washington State at the time. So how can you say a case like that is not heinous enough to warrant the death penalty, but yet you have a case like Dustin Higgs, who was just executed federally, 
who wasn't the person who killed anybody, but he was still executed. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. He was involved somehow. He but was involved. He says he, he, he still claims his innocence, but he he mm-hmm. was not. It was it was undisputed that he didn't kill anybody. But yet you have cases like that. You have other cases where somebody's been involved, where a murder has occurred, and is that is that right? No, it's not right. But is it right that somebody who was involved and didn't actually murder anybody receives the death penalty and somebody who murdered 48 girls did not? And, that, and why just, did that happen? Because somebody spoke up before this guy did, right? Somebody spoke up, and so the prosecutor became a hero when he could put somebody to death. Well, that was, the case, that case was a little bit different. They gave Gary okay. Ridgway, Ridgway a plea deal because there were other, um, they, there were potentially other bodies that they hadn't recovered the, the remains of those victims. So for him no. to tell them where the, where, the other, where the other people, where the other bodies were located, they gave him a plea okay. deal to life without parole rather than the death sentence. But since you bring up the fact of other cases where people who have actually killed somebody didn't get the death penalty because they pointed the finger at somebody else. There's plenty of those cases. Richard Glossop's case is one of those cases. Yes. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yes. Yes. Richard Glossop didn't kill anybody. The person who did kill somebody pointed the finger at Richard Glossop for allegedly ordering this murder. Richard Glossop is undisputed. He didn't kill anybody. But Justin Seed, the person who did, got life without parole because he pointed the finger at Richard Glossop and said he it was a murder for hire situation. So you have Richard Glossop who was very nearly executed on death row and hasn't, yep. hasn't yep. taken, hasn't himself taken a life and his, and he pleads his innocence. And if you look at Richard Glossop's case, you, you can see some very big questions there. And anybody can follow Richard Glossop's case, by the yes. way. Uh, uh, he is on Facebook. You know, they are, they, they haven't uh, censored that. So he's on Facebook. It's yes. Richard Glossop's yep. Innocence, I believe it's called. Yep. I've talked with, uh, on several occasions over the last couple of years, Wayne Forniet, uh, his name is, um, uh, who was his very first attorney. And he's the only attorney mm-hmm. that was um, not a public defender. And he's very interested in, um, in um, you know, bringing this, uh, to, to to light and you know, and we spoke. Uh, let me see before the before the new year, a couple of months before the new year. So you know, it's these are very very difficult things. It ruined his life. It ruined uh, Wayne's life. Uh, you know, like they disbarred him, and yet here he was trying to save somebody's life. You know, so why did he disbar an attorney for defending an innocent man? Who, who's, who's, you know, they're trying to put, uh, 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 you know, put to death. You know, that that can't be right. You, you know, if something's fishy, you know, if, if something doesn't smell right, there's usually a reason why it is not right. Despite what you have heard and what the, you know, what is put out there, remember, there's centers all around us, people. You need to do your own digging. Don't just listen to Tina, Melissa. And myself, you go ahead and you look up these things. You follow up and you'll see that you can make your own choices. Dig deeper. But we are telling the truth. Yes, <laughs> yes there's plenty of, of, of very good sources. If anybody wants to look at statistics around any either wrongful convictions or 
death penalty cases, the National Registry of Exonerations um, is invaluable to someone who does any kind of research on wrongful conviction and even death penalty cases. Um, the um, Death Penalty Information Center keeps very up-to-date and legitimate statistics on, on the death penalty, on any death penalty cases as well. And what I want to, something else I wanted to address too is there's, there's a number of cases and sometimes when you think of somebody being able to prove their innocence, you, you think of DNA cases and you think of DNA evidence, but the majority of those 173 exonerations from death row included perjured testimony, testimony of witnesses that pointed the finger at somebody else to either get a reduced sentence or not end up on death row, a, a number of things. And so that is included in most of those cases. And in the number of exonerations, there was 209, in, in the year 2019, there was 143 exonerations. And out of those 143 exonerations, um, 101 of them included perjured testimony. We have to start looking at these other factors. We can't just say innocence is only proven upon um, DNA evidence or new DNA evidence or, or faulty DNA procedures that were used. We have to start looking at these other factors because they are playing a role in convicting innocent people. And that includes misconduct too, police and official misconduct. And when you mentioned um, withholding exculpatory evidence, that, from, that, that represents misconduct on the prosecutor's part. Yeah, and and when are we going to actually start holding these people accountable when they have been uh, voted in or or they have been placed appointed in positions of trust? I won't even say positions of power because I, I really don't even like to use that word because it's supposed to be positions of trust. You know, to do right by us. But we have an issue here. You know, all these state agencies, government agencies, they're part of a corporation, all right? They're all about making the big bang, the big dollar. And uh, and they don't want to let anybody down, or they might lose their position. You know, there's so many thoughts to this, but I'll try not to get off on that tangent. Okay. So here Tanya. we are, mental Tanya. illness. Yes. Yeah. We've got somebody yes. who's live who's making a tremendous racket in the background. If they would please mm-hmm. stop, it sounds like I'm not sure what they're doing. But yeah. if so they if would please stop. Background noise, um, if there's any way yes. we can reduce that. Sorry, I know it's yeah. a pain for uh, anybody that's on yep. um, because it just yep. picks up really easily. Thank you. Um the Supreme Court, in the 6-3 decision, uh, Melissa, you brought this to my attention earlier today when we spoke. Uh, this is uh, in regard to mental illness, and let me see, what was the name of that case? Uh, uh, okay, well, first of all, uh, it is, let me see. I'll read it. You'll recognize it. How about that? Results. The Supreme Court in the 6-3 decision ruled the executions of the mentally retarded criminals are cruel mm-hmm. and unusual punishments prohibited yeah. by the Eighth Amendment. Now, 
Is somebody mentally retarded if they are mentally ill? What is that drawing of the line? How do, uh, I, you know, I don't necessarily like the fact that it is, uh, that right here, and I'm sure there's more to it, but it says mentally retarded. Um, can you shed some clarity on that? The disability or mental retardation is not a condition that is the defender's fault or finding uh, something for which he is responsible, and the defendant's mental retardation greatly increases the likelihood of the conviction and execution of a factually innocent individual, and that, uh, forgive me, and that this is this risk is intolerable. Okay, so we're seeing both sides of it here. I want to hear, because I respect and trust you and all you do so much, I want to hear your input on this. We are aware that is a woman that there's a woman that was put to death, or was there a stay with her? The woman who actually um, engaged in a heinous criminal activity that carved uh, the womb of a baby um, you know, out, uh, out, out of a, 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 another woman. Yeah, that's you Lisa know. Montgomery's case. Lisa Montgomery okay. was executed. Yes. She was executed. She was I, I, yes, she was. I know that there was last minute. Okay, thank you for that update. Okay, let's talk mm-hmm. about that case a little bit. Now we are talking about the mentally ill. Not everybody can get away with that. Not everybody should get away with that. And there are certain levels of mentally ill. Yes. To you and what has been uh, legislated, in particular, uh, in, uh, in the case that you had brought up to me earlier, and I'm looking for my notes here. Uh, Roper, Roper versus Cinnamon, Cin- uh, Simmons, I believe. Roper versus Simmons. That was the case yeah. that um, juveniles cannot be executed any any longer. Um, that's what that was the decision in Roper versus Simmons. The case of Atkins versus Virginia is the one that um, concluded that. Uh, executing mentally retarded individuals, and that's exactly how it was stated in the decision, is uh, a violation of the Eighth Amendment and the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause. So in this so, case, uh, we're... go ahead. Well, someone like Lisa Montgomery, um, she definitely had mental disabilities, but the court didn't declare her mentally retarded. She, she was... Um, put through quite a torturous life. If you look back at what she had been through, the system failed her completely. She was sex trafficked as a child by her mother and her stepfather. Um, as far as I know, she did have a sister who was taken into foster care, and the sister, I, I guess, lived a, a pretty, I, I mean, normal, I don't know what you want to classify that as life, but uh, much more normal than Lisa did, staying in the house where they left her. And so... Um, there was just a horrendous life that she had and for them to execute her um, and not to consider her mentally disabled enough to avoid execution. I I don't know. I mean, the the court in Atkins versus Virginia, they based the standards on the um, AAMR definition of mental retardation. So there's a standard to meet. So not everybody in their eyes meets that standard, even though it's questionable to other okay, people. Okay, so let's this spot right here. I think we have another caller. Marty? Sure. 
Oh, I heard. Okay, forgive me. No, we don't. Okay, forgive me. That might have been my phone, my messages. Okay, so in this case, um, did you study it much? Can I ask you a couple of questions about it? Um, was she on disability? Had are there were there medical records um, on her behalf that uh, that was substantial enough to fight for her life regarding um, her? I don't know how the records didn't. I know what the standard is in Atkins versus Virginia. I don't right. know how they didn't find that that she met that standard. Um, there, like I said, it's their definition of mental retardation in accordance with the AAMR. If anybody's not familiar, that's the American Association of Mental Retardation. Right. And I think they also called on uh, the American Psychiatric Association for that definition. And it's Fine. something. It's got to be a sub-average, um, a diminished intellectual functioning, and like other other deficits in in adaptive functioning. There, there's a definition that is included in the decision in Atkins versus Virginia, but obviously, it's not a standard that every everybody meets. And someone like Lisa Montgomery definitely had mental health issues, but they uh, apparently they found that she didn't meet that standard as outlined in Atkins versus Virginia. And I think that happens in a lot of cases where um, you would think that the defendant would qualify as men- mentally retarded, but not according to the definition. And, the, and these are some of, I, I feel, some of the, the, the loopholes that occur in some of these decisions. And I mean, I'm not trying to d- diminish a Supreme Court decision, but I mean, there are people who have been executed it's very questionable whether or not they were mentally confident enough where they should have been executed. Right. If, if anybody knows anything about uh, depression and mental illness, you're going to find out that uh, the people who need the help most um, are too incapacitated to get what they need mm-hmm. the most. And unless somebody else is forcing you into that, as you, when you're an adult, nobody can force you into that, okay? And so then there's less that might be on the record because that person isn't getting the help that they need. So there might be somebody who appears to be a functioning, you you know, uh, I think everybody understands what a functioning alcoholic is, right? You you know, somebody who goes to work, but they they get drunk every night, you you know, and they can't not or something similar to that, right? But but yet they go to work. They're still able to make their ends meet, even though their lives might be, you know, their personal lives might be getting destroyed somehow. They can make it through. Um, But when somebody is mentally ill to that level, to that degree, and incapacitated, uh, then, you know, I don't know if she had a prior record at all. I don't know if that was a failure of the system by uh, letting her have the freedom to have what she had, depending on if she had a prior record. You know, I'm just going to say firsthand, I did not dig into this case. I have little knowledge of it, but I had enough knowledge of it to know that she was about to be executed and found out tonight indeed she was. I also understood that there was, um, you know, the mental illness 
in, in, involved in the end of, you know, a, a terrifying childhood. Um, and uh, it makes you wonder sometimes because, you know, I know of um, another young woman who uh, survived that, and she is a tremendous advocate. And and um, and she didn't go that way. Is that a choice? Is that a choice? I you know I don't know people. I don't know. You know they, we're talking about the brain. We're talking about science. We're talking about dysfunction. We're talking about did this person have support to get help and to change her brain? Because brains can be changed in many, many cases, but did she have that? Um, I My heart breaks for the woman that was murdered, the family, for the baby that was cut out of her womb. Mm-hmm. Heinous, heinous can possibly be. Heinous as heinous can possibly be. That is, the person who committed that crime is the same person who was a child, single digit, even if it wasn't single digit, that was essentially raped day after day after day after day. Tina and I know of another young woman, uh, and I'm sure she's fine with us naming her name because she's been on our show, Jamie Moore, who at mm-hmm. the age of 14 was convicted as an adult uh, facing death row. And, and, and it, you believe it or not, yes. And then in came, in came the, 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 the tribes and saved her life. You can, you're not supposed to do that. You can't do it. Hey, but that was Oklahoma. Hey, Oklahoma can do whatever they want, right, when it comes to this stuff? Well, no, damn it. Yes, damn it. <laughs> you know, yes, because they can get away with it. No, when you've got the tribe behind you, and we need to get that tribe behind every other state where this is actually happening, and we need to change this. Uh, the, the whole big picture, not the small picture, the big picture. One person, yes, Melissa, one person is too many. Yes, I, it is. Um, there's no room. I, I'll say it again. There's no room for error when you're talking about the life of an innocent person. And I don't mean to ever um, minimize the, the victims and their families, but nobody, there's no justice for anybody when, when somebody is wrongfully convicted, that's not justice for the victim. That's not justice for their family because when somebody's wrongfully convicted, that that's injustice all the way around. The person who actually committed the crime is, is either getting away with the crime, didn't go to jail for it, got, you know, got a reduced sentence for it. That, that that's not justice. Tina, you have let to me consider ask you the whole thing. picture. Yep, Tina, I'm going to ask you, and then Melissa, I'm going to ask you too. So what happens when we've got somebody who's on death row and even the victim's family is saying, no, I do not want this person executed, okay? We've got that happening in, in wrongful conviction cases and those also that are going to death row where the families are saying, no, please don't. Tina? I think it's just the DA and what they want. They don't care what the victim's family thinks. They don't care if the person is saying they're innocent. 
it's it's all the DAs and judges. I mean, it happens quite often where you know the 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 victim's family doesn't believe that they got the right person, and yet they're putting or them to death. death. Hmm. Or they don't want the death sentence as well, even if it is the right person. But you're right. But yeah. It's if if the family feels it's not justice for them to get a death sentence, then why do why do they push so hard for it? The DA's office. And we have had people on this show, Melissa. I think that you were on as well. I think Arthur Bean was on too as well with this one, where we have had. Oh uh, goodness, I'm trying to think of the name. One of the one of uh, the law and four in Oklahoma, where um, the family did not want there to be a life sentence or death row. Uh, I, I'm going to have to go back because we're about ready to get all that all back on everybody back on um, after we after we learn about Jorge Bravo um, listeners. Mm-hmm. Jorge Bravo, one of the law and four and more. Um, in Oklahoma, but this is, come, come on now, like we've got, um, Melissa, this just doesn't happen in Oklahoma, but as we talked about earlier, you know, some states aren't nearly as bad as others. And, and why is it, Melissa, can you share with our listeners, why is that? Um, some states practice the death penalty very actively, and um, as we know, there's a number of states that don't practice it at all. There's a number of states who do still have the death penalty as a sentencing option, but they haven't actually practiced, actually performed an execution in over 10 years, but there are states that still actively pursue it. As I said, 80% of all executions occur in southern states, so we're talking about states um, such as Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas and Alabama and even, you know, even Florida, Georgia, mm-hmm. the majority the of executions occur. Sorry. The ones who pride themselves on being the Bible Belt. But yeah, and, and they actually have been known as the debt belt because those are the states that perform most of the executions. Now, and, and these executions, I know in Oklahoma, it was put on hold because of some horrific yes. uh, 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 suffering. Uh, they, they got it wrong, you know. Um, or was this put on hold in general throughout the country and then just started again? No, Oklahoma um, stopped executions in 2015 because they didn't have the correct protocol, I, I believe, for the lethal injections that which is how they perform their executions so i believe that is the only reason why they stopped executions um they have to follow the protocol go back to it right hunter is happy to get back to it what about other states what's going on in these other states where they're saying go go murder 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 well i i mean there's other states obviously that still actively pursue it but the national consensus of support for capital punishment keeps going down. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's going down. And they just did a Gallup poll in 2020 that shows that 55% of people support the death penalty. That's the lowest number of support since 
like sometime in the 1960s. So it is going down. Um, when they talk about eliminating the death penalty on a national basis, you talk about um, evolving standards of decency and, na- and things like national consensus. So if the national consensus sways in such a way that people are not supporting the death penalty anymore because as a society our, our standards of decency have evolved, then maybe that's when the death penalty is abolished on a national level. I know those numbers keep going down. There's always going to be, there's just going to be states that still want to practice the death penalty. So and what, I don't, whatever, I, whatever happened, I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but I'm going to because okay. I think you're going to jump right onto this one with me. Whatever happened to the difference between civil litigation and civil trials and criminal trials, criminal trials beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt. So what is happening is people are being put to death because the prosecution is saying, no, we cannot allow this evidence, exculpatory evidence. I apologize for not explaining this earlier for people that don't know what it is. There's never a wrong question. Hopefully you've already looked it up. Jesus is serious enough that you need to know. But just in case you didn't, okay, let us explain this again. Exculpatory evidence is something that can be presented on behalf of the defense that could make the difference between a particular conviction or not. And one exculpatory evidence is not allowed in, is not allowed as an exhibit when it should be. It could mean the difference between life and death. Now, how do you think that you would feel if you're a member of a jury that rules on behalf of either a life sentence or a death sentence, okay? How do you think you would feel, as in many cases, and I know this to be the case with Daniel Holt's Claw too, okay, uh, how do you think you would feel if you found out later that exculpatory evidence could be DNA? Oh, imagine that. It, it could be a number of different things. It could be an affidavit, a sworn affidavit, all right? How would Mm -hmm. you feel if you found out you did not have the opportunity to make a ruling as somebody who is being trusted in making the best decisions for the public protections of our society, of our free society, right? Some people do not belong in it. We know this, okay? Whether you believe in the death sentence or not. How would you feel if you found out somebody was sentenced to death and they were indeed put to death only to find out the exculpatory evidence that could have proven somebody's innocence or a lesser of a charge that would not have put them to death was not presented to you? This yeah, that's um, that's a, that, you know the the court talks about upholding um, juries' verdicts and and not wanting to to disrupt juries' verdicts, but they don't talk about the fact that there is exculpatory evidence that is withheld, and jurors have come forward in cases and said, had this evidence been presented to them, it would have changed their mind. 
So I try to put myself in the position of a juror that sentenced somebody to death and then later finds out that I didn't actually see all the evidence that might have changed my mind. That's an injustice to a juror. I, I mean, that's an injustice to the whole jury. Mm-hmm. And so they, they get away with this, Not you know, withholding exculpatory evidence. There's a good example of withholding exculpatory evidence, and that's when co-defendants in cases are given lesser sentences or informants in cases are given lesser sentences for their testimony, and those lesser sentences are not disclosed to the defense. And, and they don't, you know, um, for instance, in Julius Jones's case, the co-defendant Christopher Jordan walked out of prison exactly 15 years after the crime was committed. He had disclosed to another inmate that that was the deal that he made with the prosecutor, that Julius wasn't involved in the case, that he was given a deal by the prosecutor where he was going to walk in 15 years. That wasn't revealed to the defense. Did Christopher Jordan walk out of jail in 15, 15 years later? He sure did walk out of jail 15 years later. So how, did, how is that explained? It's, to me, it's not. Mm-hmm. And, and and correct. Yep. Well, I don't need to say correct with anything you have to say or Tina has to say. Yeah. There were other informants in, in that case as well who had given leniency on other sentences. And and it just it's yeah. I was just I was just going to bring that up. Yep. Yeah. Tina, and we talk about to... everything they keep the attorney general and governors and everybody in charge keep saying it's for the public safety, but it's not for the public safety if you're keeping the wrong person in prison. It, it can't <laughs> Absolutely, be public it's not. safety. It's not. It okay. doesn't promote public safety. It doesn't promote justice for anybody if the wrong person is in jail or worse, if the wrong person is executed. The lot in four, we've got Mark West. We've got mm-hmm. Mike James. We've got Julius Jones, and we have well, Jorge Julius Jones Bravo. is a part of the Lawton Four, but... <laughs> he, he isn't. No, Julius isn't. Jones I, is not. Uh, the Lawton Four is um, Michael Gaines, um, right. George Bruno, Mark West, and Stanley Watson. Stanley Watson, forgive me. Forgive yes. me. Oh, my no, God. No, that's okay. What am, I, <laughs> what am I thinking? Now... Julius Jones, what district was he out of? Julius Jones is Oklahoma City. Julius Jones is Oklahoma City. Another gateway to well, the, the crime that itself had occurred had occurred in Edmond, but that's that's where the crime subject of Julius's case had occurred. Okay, right. So, Thank you. That's yeah. That. So we so this is this is really a front and center case. Um, uh, people, because he still is and remains on on death row. Let's talk about Julius Jones a little bit. Then let's talk about the one of the um, of the Lawton Ford that we have not had um, that we have not done a show uh, uh, around yet, which um, you'll be on with us on Tuesday to shed light on Jorge. I thought it was Jorge Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Julius Jones right now because this man is on death row. It's been over a year that the commutation has been in uh, Governor Stitt's hands, correct? 
let's just let's talk about that case and yeah, yeah. ask you a ton of questions, uh, or or maybe I will, but I'm going to ask you to just uh, update us for now, and and we'll dig a little deeper. Um, Julius Jones has a commutation application pending, so he's waiting for a commutation hearing before the Board of Pardon and Parole. That he's waiting for them to schedule his hearing. But his um, application has been pending for over a year now, so he's waiting for that hearing to be scheduled. Now, have there been any other commutations that have been brought forth uh, to Governor Sitt and the uh, and the Attorney General's office? Okay, um, they go forward actually to the governor, correct? Yeah. Well, the the. Um, BPP, the Board of Pardon and Paroles, makes their recommendation, and then that recommendation goes to Governor Stitt. Right. So, uh, yeah, and now Governor Stitt can still, despite the uh, dis- despite the recommendation, can review this and make mm-hmm. a determination himself, even if they say, no, we don't recommend. Is that right? Yeah, the... the- the power does ultimately lie with Governor Stitt. I mean, I, I don't know the percentage of, of cases that, you know, the, the BPP will make one recommendation and, and the governor will do something else. I don't know those statistics. but I would um, imagine I think, probably none, unless it was a family member. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm not, you know, I'm not familiar. I don't want to speak on any other, any other cases of, of commutation right. because I'm not familiar with, with any any other cases? I'm, I'm a, I am familiar with Julius's case and where it stands, but that is right. just so, waiting for a hearing. And why has it any... been on hold for? A... Sorry. No. Why has it been on hold for a year? I don't know. Um, there, I, I guess you know a lot of people know about the issues they've been having with the Board of Pardon and Parole in Oklahoma. Um, mm-hmm. A board member just resigned, so they they I, they have to appoint a new member. I don't know when they're going to start. They said that they were going to start um, scheduling those commutation hearings at the beginning of the year, but we're here, so I don't know when that's going to commence. I don't know that anybody knows that. Tina, you being in Oklahoma, what have you heard about this board member that has resigned? Was he fair and balanced? Was he... Um, was he, uh, I mean, what have you heard? I've heard that, um, that he was, and this is somebody's quote, one of the good ones. Um, but mm-hmm. I've seen that too, Tina. So, but so now Governor Stitt has to appoint somebody new and I don't know how long that's going to take. And if he appoints somebody like the other Two that he's appointed, Adam Luck and um, oh, her name is failing me. Then, right. That's then day. people might have a chance, right, to to get a second chance. So, Governor Stitt actually has made two good appointments on the Pardon and Parole Board. So uh, I know that a, a lot of people, including myself, have really been calling him out on what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing. Uh, but sometimes good things take t- 
time to come to fruition. We just don't want people's lives lost in the meantime, do we? So, um, but Hunter, he certainly has had some things to say about Julius Jones, who is, and he yeah. is uh, the uh, he is the attorney general. Who I don't have anything good to say uh, well, about. He, do, he has, yeah, he, he has come said. forward and he Go has ahead. come forward and, and spoken about Julius's case. But I, I say this, I mean. All I all I'll say about that is that he has, you know, he he said that Julius Jones has had his day in court. But what does that mean when someone has their day in court? Does it mean that they were properly represented? In Julius's case, he wasn't properly represented. His attorney was inexperienced. Um, he had no experience in capital cases whatsoever. He didn't call a witness on Julius's behalf. He didn't call any alibi witnesses. He didn't. Um, dispute the fact that Julius did not match the description of the only eyewitness. Um, there was a picture that could have proven that that wasn't presented to the jury. Um, just a little bit on, on the case, the, the description of the eyewitness de- described someone as wearing a stocking cap with uh, about a half an inch of hair hanging out from the, beneath the cap. If you look at a picture of Julius that was available, um, an official picture, you would see that Julius had a very uh, was very clean cut. So there's no way that he would have fit that description. The co-defendant, on the other hand, Christopher Jordan, did fit that description. Yes. Now there is. So um, there when you say, I'm sorry. Go ahead. When you say Julius had his day, day in court, you know, if, if Mike Mike Hunter's representing that, you know, Julius has had his day in court. They found him guilty. He's guilty. That's it. There's a lot more questions to that case that um, need to be looked at, and that is number one right there. If, if Julius doesn't match the description of the only eyewitness, then how can you say that he had his fair day in court? And they, you know, they failed to say that it was ineffective counsel, but the fact of the matter is this isn't the first case or probably won't be the last that's happened this way in Oklahoma. You are appointed an attorney at state trial that does not properly represent you. The court can call it trial strategy if they want to, but how is, how is that a defense strategy when you don't call a witness on your client's behalf. To me, that's not trial trial strategy. strategy, To me, as though it's set up the state for success and and for uh, the defendant for um, the inability to actually, uh, to uh, to actually uh, be properly represented because they they appoint something that is not experienced, and you have expressed numerous times on our show before on the show uh, how important it is to have uh, somebody who is so well-versed because we are talking about life and death. Now, for this defense attorney, it could be a huge case. You know, okay, so, you know, yeah. the defense attorney, the and point the, of, yeah. you're going to take it. it I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that an attorney goes in there and intentionally doesn't represent their client, but a capital case is a, the, a case of the biggest magnitude. And if you don't have experience in that type of case, you cannot properly represent your client. Even if you have the intention to do so, you don't have the even experience. If even if you do, and we do know, don't we? We do know that there are those. The don't. Let's not forget yeah, that. And the, 
no, we, we can't forget that. And then what happens is when you don't have proper representation at the, at the trial level, at the, at the initial trial, the state level, you are procedurally barred from introducing, for introducing anything that the court says could have been introduced at, that, at the time of trial. So now it becomes that much more difficult for somebody to prove their innocence when they were not properly represented at state trial. It becomes almost impossible, and people. And you were you know, that more to listeners, where you're okay, procedurally so, barred. Why? Because if you don't bring up evidence that the court feels existed at the time of the trial, you're barred from bringing up that evidence in the in the future. But what happens mm-hmm. is if you're not if you don't have proper representation, there's things that are not brought up at the trial. So I don't agree with the fact that the court can say, well. If somebody can prove actual innocence, it doesn't matter because now you're procedurally barred from introducing that evidence. How can you tell somebody that they cannot say they cannot try to prove their innocence and save their own life when they weren't properly represented initially at state trial? There's things that they can bring up, evidence that can be brought up that could prove their innocence, but now they're barred from doing that. That's not protection. There's supposed supposedly 17 layers of protection in the death penalty case, and that's part of the argument for people. They say, well, there's so many, um, th- there's so many phases. There, th- you know, there's, there's direct appeals, and there's post-conviction relief, and then there's habeas writs. But in all of that, if you're barred from bringing up evidence that can prove your actual innocence, what is the purpose of all that other than a waste of money on a policy exactly. that is broken and doesn't work? So let me let mm-hmm. let me explain to let me explain to the listeners that some might not under, understand that. And with a mm-hmm. death penalty case, there's more layers, absolutely, um, as, as what Melissa just said. Uh, but say you don't have a um, a, a, a death penalty case, um, yeah. you, you know, uh, whatever happens at the district level, okay, if a decision is made. You appeal that decision. You need to make sure prior to a decision that everything that you could possibly imagine is on the record in the district court because when you're in appeals court, they will prohibit you from bringing forward whatever there was in the district court that led that district court to opine either, you know, yay or nay, okay? Uh, so, so that's when you ask for the record from the clerk of the district court, a designation of record is what it is called. People do it, and still the district court at times, depending on if it is corrupt or not, and I know of some that definitely are, people do it. They ask for the full and complete record to go forward to the appeals court, and yet the district court does not disclose all. And then what's even worse is when that record is made to be, uh, when the appeals court is made aware that the record was not completely offered to the uh, appeals court. When the appeals court says, that's okay, we've got enough, that right there is an injustice, okay? That does happen in Oklahoma. That does happen in other states. But we have to get down to also 
you know, how each states are, are very different, okay? But uh, in the fact where there are death, in the, in the matter where there are death penalty cases, there are even more layers and more opportunities for that person not to be put to death, as Melissa is sharing. And still, still, you're met with a brick wall in some cases. Correct? Yeah, correct. I mean, you can look at the cases that, you know, if you're, you're speaking of Oklahoma, you can look at Julius's case. You can look at Richard Glossop's case. In Richard Glossop's case, I believe they had um, witnesses that were willing to come forward with new information, but of, apparently Richard Glossop has exhausted all of his appeals. So, that, I mean, that's an instance of is there information that can prove somebody's innocence and is the court preventing them from presenting that information or that new evidence or the new witness because of a procedural bar? That's my question. How can you... How nuts is that? How, how crazy is that? That it is. It sounds it sounds ridiculous, and and maybe you know people will look at it in a different light. Maybe everybody doesn't know this. Maybe everybody doesn't see what's behind this the death penalty, capital punishment. There's a lot of factors behind it that tell us we need to stop. We need to stop killing people. We're we're we know we're executing innocent people. You can't. There's been 173 exonerations from death row since 1973. There's been about 1,500 executions. Are you going to tell me that the system that we have has gotten all the other ones right? I, I don't believe that. No. I don't either. Right, Tina? Oh, absolutely not. I can't remember the names, but I know there was a couple in Arkansas a couple years ago, I believe, that kept Stating they were innocent, there was DNA they said would prove that they were innocent, but they were not allowed to use the DNA to prove their innocence. If you're putting somebody to death, I don't care. I don't care if he exhausted all his appeals. If there's something to show that he did not do the crime, why are you killing him? It makes no sense. Right. Beyond That's the shadow exactly of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, you know, let's talk about a crazy, let's talk about a crazy rule that Oklahoma has, okay? I don't know other states that do. We had Perry Lott on with us, okay? Perry Lott, um, an Oklahoma exonerate, or, or uh, he's been commutated, forgive me. He, to this date, he was, commutated because there was no evidence of guilt, okay? He's an innocent man, all right? They basically said, oh, because he had a silver or gold tooth, that, that, that is how he was identified. Well, there, there are a lot of men that had silver and, and, and gold teeth. He wasn't even in the area, okay? So he, after I think it was 30-something years, uh, was commutated, but he's on parole for the rest of his life. So he the state agrees that he is not guilty, all right? The state agrees that he is not guilty. So unless the governor gives him a pardon or until they find who is actually guilty, which this person could be dead for all we know, right? Perry Lott 
still has to get permission to leave the state. And why is this? This is because it's, it sits on the record for the prosecutor. She's probably still not even there anymore. Is this really the intent of our petition? I, I think not. I think not. So, so, so we've got to talk a little bit for a few minutes about Julius Jones' case, and then I want to move on to, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about on Tuesday, which is Jorge Bravo. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about <laughs> Julius Jones' case and what happened there, if you can, you know, what the end result was, who was murdered, and uh, where Julius stands right now. I mean, I know that he's, he is on the desk in a pile, but just let's let our listeners know a little bit about that case. And, and, and that also is on um, the web page or Facebook page, um, Journeys to Justice, Inc., and Journeys to, Ju- to Justice, the Injustice, the Criminal uh, Division, right, Tina? Criminal I Justice that. Division. Yeah. Okay. So anybody can, there's a little documentary there. Okay. About Julius Jones, but do you mind sharing a little bit about what's in that documentary for people that won't be able to take the time to listen to that? Well, okay. I wanted to, yeah, I will talk about Julius. I just wanted to say um, really quickly about Perry Lott that Perry Lott actually had to to take a deal to to get out of prison. So he had to choose between um, his freedom and, and not pursue not pursuing his innocence. I believe he's still pursuing exoneration, but he was he was let out for time served on a sentence modification. So for all intents and purposes, Perry Lott is still convicted of murder, even though he's out free. Yep. I mean, what would okay. you do? I mean, you're you're going to take your freedom. You're not going to say. Yes. I mean, who is going to say? Well, I'm going to stay incarcerated because I want to prove my innocence. Perry Lott. I believe it, like I said, is still pursuing exoneration, but he, he was, he was not just, he was not just let out. I, I, I believe he's still pursuing exoneration. He hasn't been exonerated. What I, what I do know is he is working hard in Oklahoma um, to help those that have been wrongfully convicted. Um, But there was a special condition, absolutely, in which he was, I'm trying to think of uh, what that term is called, and I'll be darned if I, I just can't remember it right now. Yep, yep, and, and, and that's, I, I, you cannot fault the man. You cannot fault the man for saying, let me get the heck out of here, uh, you, you know, but, but the, um, uh, yeah, so he has to check in with his, um, with their the parole people, and they've been very reasonable him with him um, if he needs to leave the state. But that is no that you know they admit there's no evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that leads to his conviction. Why is this happening? Why is it happening? Well, it's, it's prima facie. You know, it, it's forgive me, prima facie, you know, on the surface, you, you know, these rules and laws, these statutes, uh, you know, appear to be in the best interest of, uh, you, you know, the protections for, you know, each individual citizen and citizens as a whole, but, it, but that's, again, on its face. 
does not mean that is really what is happening here. Um, too often not. Too often not. Mm-hmm. Well, but he needed three men. Go ahead. You wanted to. Um, I don't know what you wanted to to speak of about Julius's case. I know we spoke that it is um, pending a commutation hearing. So I, what I don't know. Case who was murdered? Uh, and oh, okay. Happened. Yeah. Let's just talk about the, okay. the ugly. Well, the, the documentary is the last defense, and if anybody wants to know about Julius Jones's case, that's a great place to start. And Julius has a website. It's www.justiceforjulius.com. There's a petition there that tells about what happened in Julius's case, and I'd be happy to tell you a little about it. There's also a place where you can contact the Board of Pardon and Parole and Governor Stitt to let them know that Julius Jones should be his sentence should be commuted. He should be granted commutation. Um, but Julius Jones's case, um, the murder happened. Uh, there was a murder. It was a carjacking. There was a murder of a, a man by the name of Paul Howell. This occurred back in 1999. So um, there was a carjacking. I don't. I don't want to go into every detail of Julius's case, right. but that is pretty much there was a. There was a co-defendant, Christopher Jordan, who pointed the finger at Julius that said that he did it. Um, let's be clear that um, Julius had no involvement in the crime whatsoever, but by the Edmond Police Department with their tunnel vision and focusing in on Julius and building a case around him with two other informants, um, Liddell King and, and Kermit Lottie, and the co-defendant, Christopher Jordan, um, the whole case was concocted to point the finger at Julius, and Julius had as we mentioned, very inexperienced counsel at trial, and Julius was convicted to death, and he remains on death row. He's been in prison for 21 years now. Mm-hmm. So he remains on death row in Oklahoma, um, despite the fact that Christopher Jordan, as I mentioned before, um, served 15 years of what was supposed to be a 30-year sentence, and uh, he walked out of jail in 2014. And the case and was now, based completely on. He was a grade A student, or he was like he was a very oh, yeah. good student. He was. He yeah, had. He was on a, him personally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was on a. He Julius Jones is. Um, you know, when when you think of when people think of the death penalty and they like to have that vision in their mind of it's the worst of the worst people, that is the farthest from the truth. If you were to speak right. with Julius Jones, because he is far from that. Julius Jones does not belong on death row. Oh, he's yeah, he's super intelligent, um, and he has a lot to offer. And if for those reasons, if if only for those reasons, his sentence should be commuted. I mean, if, if you look at his case and you look at his petition and, and you watch the last defense, any average person is going to see the amount of questions, the amount of evidence in that case that says that Julius didn't commit that crime, but yet mm-hmm. he still sits on death row. Mhm, mhm. This is horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it really touches your heart in every possible way. Listeners, you know this. If you don't, I bet you're feeling it right now. If you're tuning in for the first time, this could happen to your child. This could happen to your nephew, niece. This could happen to your brother, sister. 
this can happen to anybody. This can happen to anybody. It just so happens in certain parts of our country. I'm, I, I cannot, I cannot turn my back on this. And please, don't you either. That if you do look at the statistics, it does not mean it does not happen to other races, okay? But you're going to see that black men are wrongfully convicted at far higher of a rate than a white man. It does not mean that a white man, an Indian man, uh, any other race, okay, it does not mean that that shouldn't matter when they're wrongfully convicted. But, Melissa, help me out with these statistics. Let's make this perfectly clear. So I did a, I did a study um, in a data analysis class on race and wrongful convictions. I wanted to know if there was did – did race play a factor in wrongful convictions? And um, the study that I did, 52% of all wrongful convictions were of black men. But – they only make up about 13% of the United, the United States population. So to put that into perspective, that's four times. They're represented four times their population in wrongful convictions. That's first. So that's wrongful convictions. That includes all wrongful convictions. That's not just death penalty cases. But okay. since, so since 1976, so we, we, when we refer to the death penalty, we refer to the modern era, which is 1976 to the present, because that's when the death penalty was reinstated. If you were, there was, it was stopped in 73, reinstated in 76. And so since that time, um, 43% of total executions since 76 were of black descendants. And um, 55% of the people awaiting execution are black descendants. So, again, 13% of the United States population. But look at these numbers, overrepresented in every number. Now, the single... The, the, the most reliable predictor of somebody receiving the death sentence is the, actually is determined by the race of the victim. So if the race of the victim is white, the, you have, there's a 4.3 4. times more likely to be sentenced to death if the victim is white versus if the victim is black. That's not dependent really? on, on the race of the defendant. That's just dependent on the race of the victim. So, Interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It, that's the single. That is the single most Compelling. known predictor of it. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I know this isn't a show about the Black Lives Matter movement, but when people no, no, no not at all. Look, all uh, talk about okay. that, but you can say matter, you can say how my, much do they matter? matter. You're not talking about right. Is that based? Nobody's against the Black Lives Mattering. I personally am against the organization. Okay, I'm not against all lives matter, including black lives. Uh, And so this is, again, Uh you know, we are not here to politicize a doggone thing. No, but if you look at these statistics and and you're someone who supports the Black Lives Matter movement, how much of an argument do you have that in, in this society, in this criminal justice system, black lives do not matter because if the victim in a death case is for, if the, if someone's sentenced to death, it's, and it's more likely 4.3 times more likely when the victim is white 
then tell me how much black lives matter in the criminal justice system. That's a real right. big predictor. Uh, That's a real big yeah. indication. Yeah. Let's, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So let's get, let's, let's get this straight. Yeah. Let's get this straight. Nobody is supporting mm-hmm. um, a, a, a violent movement. No, whatever, no, that doesn't, a, that, that statistic doesn't have anything to do with any kind of, no. Every, it's happened on the right, it's happened on the left, we've got corruption in every freaking party. So let's get that perfectly straight, okay? Right? Are we all in agreement here? Yeah, we are all in agreement, except for the except for the fact that statistics don't lie. And I, I'm, I'll just, I'll leave it at that, oh, I don't want to make this into a... Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not a fan of the organization. I am a fan of the fact mm-hmm. that, that I understand, I, I grasp, and I stand by the fact that, that black men are executed, convicted more than any other race. That I mm-hmm. stand by. And it's I, I in agree. every component. I've seen it. I stand by them. We're, you know, we're on board with that. We're on board with that. You know, I, I personally have learned an awful lot about the organization that I do not stand by. Mm-hmm. Uh, the organization I don't stand by. So I have to. I have to make that clear. I stand by the okay. life of every person matters, and 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 we need to address that every person's life life is important. And by gosh darn it, if well, black we need men to tell that to our criminal justice and, and system. Death. Yes, we do, and that we need to tell that tell. to our criminal justice system because in yes, every single do. component of the criminal justice system, there are disparities, and it's called racial yes, cumulative disadvantage, and it happens from policing to pretrial detention to prosecution yes. to sentencing yes. to, to death sentences. Yes. It's present yes. in every component of the system, and it needs to change. And it that's why I say that, yes. Yes. And we need to stand together for this effort, people. This really has nothing to do with a party. Think about that word. No. There's conservatives. There, there, if, if, you, you know, if, you, if you turn to parties, there's um, conservative people that don't support the death penalty. There's liberal people yes. that don't support the death penalty. Yes. I've spoken with yes. many people that affiliate themselves with the Republican Party and label themselves as conservatives that don't support the death penalty. And there's different reasons why. It can go from innocent people being executed. It can, yeah. it can go to, to the fact that it's, it is a waste of, of public funds to, to continue yes, with, this, yeah. with this I practice. Mean, Richard Glossop's on death, on death row. He's a, he's a white man. But there are more that are yep. black. And there are more that are wrongfully convicted that are black. Daniel Holtzclaw is a white man. He's there. He is, he is in prison for the rest of his life until or unless mm-hmm. we can get the attention of people as well as many other, others, that actually more percentage-wise that are black men uh, that are, 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 are in for life. You know, every, we need to stand up for what is just, what is true, what is right for and. and and I'm a white woman on here, and I am saying that because I, you know, I don't need to say, oh, I've got black friends. Do you? Do you, Tina? You don't need to say that. You, you know, we don't need to sit here and justify ourselves. We just need to stand by what is right. And we ask that everybody else understands that there are more of us that stand by 
what is just and what is true and what is right that is not. Some of us have different ways of, of, of getting there, of feeling uh, things that have happened. We need to love each other, stand by each other, stand by those that are hurting, stand by those that are being outnumbered, stand by the freaking truth. Politicize, and it never should have been. We cannot let these corrupt Republicans and corrupt Democrats, corrupt whoever you are, get away with dividing us any more. I hope when I say you got that out there that everybody's not in their heads, yes, because I believe that 98% of the people that are listening right now agree. I'm sorry. I just, I needed to get that <laughs> off of my chest. I needed to get that off my chest. Jorge Bravo. Let's talk about Jorge Bravo. Bruno. Because we're going to talk about him on Tuesday. So I'm going to let everybody know right now, we are going to be on air on Tuesday at 5.30 Pacific Time, 6.30 Mountain Time, 7.30 Central Time, and 8.30 my time, which is... Eastern time, and we are going to talk about Jorge Bravo, which... Bruno, Tanya, Jorge Bruno. <laughs> Bruno, why... Bruno. Bruno, not Bravo. All right. Sorry. I'm not going to say whatever, because his name is Bruno, so forgive me. Yes. All right. No, that's okay. Yeah, I just, just wanted to make sure that people knew who we were talking about, make sure that they had the Jorge correct name. Bruno. Yes. Jorge Bruno. Okay. So let's spend just like two minutes talking about him before I start closing out the show and thanking you with just all the gratitude that I have in the world and Tina for being here co-hosting with me and for you for taking the time that I know that is just so, so very, uh, you know, uh, limited with you, but for being on. Let's talk for two minutes about Jorge Bruno. That, that's okay. I got your message because I asked somebody earlier, what's his last name before he put it up? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We got it. <laughs> okay. Let's okay. talk about Jorge Bruno, a couple of things well, we're going to learn the, about. The, yeah. I, I, um, I'm going to try. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to get a call from him um, before the show on Tuesday, I think. So he's supposed to try to um, reach out to me before that. But, I mean, okay. we see so- – we see a pattern in these cases in, in Oklahoma where, you know, there's co-defendants involved. There's people that are pointing the finger at somebody else because they're going to get a reduced sentence. There's, you know, people that are, that are threatened, you know, that have other cases pending. If you don't testify against this, this person, this is what's going to happen to you. So there's a lot of that going on. So I know that um, he wants to speak on, on his case. He wants to be there to speak on it. So I don't want to get too much, into it with, without him there, but if I, I don't know anybody, you know, that's listening who has listened to the stories of Michael Gaines and Stanley Watson and even Mark West, his, I know his case is a little bit different, but it, it's yeah. all, it all follows the same pattern. It follows, it follows a pattern of tunnel vision and, and, and people being convicted to excessive sentences, even if not death, life without parole. I mean, is that, is that much better of a sentence? That, that's arguable <laughs> with some people, but yeah. I, I mean, you know, 
you, you know, some, some the, these men have, have been involved in, in crimes that have occurred when they were 18 years old. A life without parole sentence in, in cases where, where there's other people who were the masterminds of the crimes or there are other people who, who actually committed the killing that are doing less time than the, than the guys who didn't. And, you know, you're, I'm, I'm a, also a big believer in second look legislation. I don't believe that anybody who's been convicted of, of a crime before the age of 25 should just be guaranteed to spend the rest of their life in jail. That's a whole nother story. I know that's a whole nother story. We have, we would have to talk about cognitive abilities and what age that that the mind actually develops. That's that's a whole argument. Twenty-five years but old. It, and we're going to talk about yeah, that. We're, we're, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to thank you right now to you, and we hope mm-hmm. that this show will go on 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 Tuesday. A show oh, yeah. will go on. Way. We have the percentages um, on our side, but um, but Melissa, I believe you will be here with us anyway. Tina Gertz, you will as well. Yep, I will. I'll be here. Okay. I will. Thank you, Tina. All right. So, uh, again, I'm going to remind everybody you're going to tune in. You're going to keep an eye, please, on um, on uh, Journeys to Justice, on Tanya Talks, Views, News, and Interviews uh, for Promos, Journeys to Justice, uh, Injustice in Oklahoma Exposed, Journeys to Justice, Tina, Injustice in Criminal the Criminal Mm-hmm. Criminal and okay. Justice Division. Okay. Uh, Tina and I are working on a very, very special project once again with Rhonda Champagne and Michael Johnson, Correcting Treatment in Corrections. Tremendous life story, tremendous book. We are going to uh, put together the first. Uh, we're going to do the first of a series uh, of a um, of an audio uh, with them on this book. Uh, this Thursday, we're going to be recording very special projects. Please look this book up, Correcting Treatment in Corrections. I want to thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Stephen Burke, 89.9 KLRBFM, thank you for airing us. Marty Oakley, Oakley, TS Radio Network, thank you for airing us. Uh, God bless everybody. Uh, please, Please stay tuned. I am your host, Tanya Hathaway, with Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard. And your story is told. Good night.